Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor for The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Central Africa has seen some of the worst inter- and intrastate conflict in the world over the past three decades. The countries of the Great Lakes region, such as Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, have become watchwords for the challenges facing sub-Saharan Africa, even as the specific conflicts remain, at best, misunderstood by American audiences. The Rwandan genocide caused the deaths of nearly a million Tutsis, while the Second Congo War, also known as the Great War of Africa from 1998 to 2003, caused more than 5 million deaths due to war and disease, with another 2 million refugees in a conflict that eventually included nine different countries and 25 armed groups, and whose effects are still felt more than 15 years since the formal end of hostilities. Binding up the wounds of such conflicts is a daunting task, requiring both international assistance and domestic governance reforms, even as the states involved struggle to gain and retain the world's attention. Our guest today, to help us better understand the conflicts and challenges of the Great Lakes region, is Dr. Laura E.C., Assistant Professor of Government at Colby College in Waterville, Maine, where she teaches African politics, conflict, and development while researching community and international responses to state fragility in Central Africa. She is, among other things, an editor for Africa content at The Monkey Cage, the Washington Post's political science blog. Her research, writing, and commentary has appeared in numerous peer-reviewed and popular publications, including The Review of African Political Economy, PS, Political Science and Politics, The Atlantic, Slate, and PRI's The World. We are delighted to have her with us today here in Carlisle. Welcome, Professor C. Thanks so much for having me. So, what should the audience know right off the bat about the Great Lakes region of Africa and its conflicts? Yeah, so I think it's important to understand that when we talk about conflict, it is important to talk about it in the plural. Um, and the the Great War, I mean, we scholars argue over how many wars it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so in 1996, you have something that's sort of a civil war, sort of a proxy war, sort of an international invasion, um, during which uh, Laurent Kabila uh, essentially overthrows um, Joseph Mobutu's government, Mobutu Sese Seko, as he preferred to be called by that point in his life, and um, marches his troops across the country takes over the capital in May of 1997. Um, he had been backed by Rwanda and Uganda at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, Kabila, that but, is. Yes, Kabila mm-hmm. had. But then uh, they had a bit of a falling out mm-hmm. um, over certain questions of um, particularly access to mineral resources in that eastern region. Um, and so he kicked them out. And they respond a few months later by invading in 98. And that's when we have the kickoff of what I think most people think of as the Great War gotcha. in Africa um, that continues. Hostilities continue until about 2002. There's a peace deal. And then in 2003, uh, we move toward implementation of that peace deal and a transitional government. But that is not the end of the fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and to this day, we still have, um, you know, kind of low intensity conflict um, across the eastern region. The number of armed groups varies by, by day, literally. 
literally. <laughs> um, somewhere I would say, you know, right now the best estimates are between 130 to 175 different arm groups. Really? Uh, yeah. But of course, some of these are, you know, 20 guys with a couple of, <laughs> of right. AKs and, and others are really significant with several thousand members. Right. Um, so our armed group is a funny term, right? Obviously, it's people don't want to call them militias. They don't yeah, want to call them armies. Non-state armed groups, NSAGs, mm-hmm. um, you know, but what, what const- how big do you have to be mm-hmm. to be a non-state armed group? Um, and the answer in the Eastern Congo is not that big to cause a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this doesn't mean that these are the kind of people who would necessarily have a stake in a national level peace deal, right. um, but they can cause a lot lot of havoc in the areas where they operate. Um, and that is what most of these groups engage in. So terrorizing civilian populations, looting, um, using sexual violence mm-hmm. against communities to terrorize them, um, and you know, maintaining access to um, all kinds of lucrative networks for financing their activities. Um, and, and some of this involves cross-border trade mm-hmm. and uh, rather, rather shady actors up to, up to not great things. Well, and uh Two things come out of what you just said. One is this this interplay between uh, intrastate and interstate conflict. So you mentioned the civil war in Congo uh, or in Zaire before it became before it became right, Congo right. again, but also the the role of the Rwandans and the and so I imagine that our audience is more familiar with the the broad outlines of the Rwandan story. But what is the relationship of the Rwandan genocide and the Rwandan conflict to these larger conflicts in Eastern Congo and the region? Sure. So that's a great question. So in many ways, the the conflict in Congo, the parts of it that are relevant to Rwanda are a continuation of the civil war that led up to the Rwandan genocide. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of those issues were never resolved. You know, in 1994, the genocide happens. It's this horrific event. Uh, You have a Tutsi um, armed group, non-state armed group at the time, that takes over the state and becomes the national army um, and, you know, runs a very, uh, very tight authoritarian ship these days. Uh, The president won his last election. I believe it was 99.3% of the vote. um, And all three of the opposition nice work candidates, if you can get it. all three opposition candidates endorsed him, which is which is really something. Wow, <laughs> that's that's not what we're used to talking about in party is, politics is, is that, for sure. That's not bipartisanship. Yeah, but. something like that. <laughs> but um, yeah, but in Congo, um, I think what happened was a lot of the issues were were never really resolved, but just transferred into a different physical space. Ah. So when the genocide happened, you had large numbers of human migration across the border into what was then Zaire. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people fleeing for their lives, women and children. Uh, but along with these innocent civilians who came over the border, you also had people who had participated in the genocide, what we call the genociders. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a great word for that in English, but uh, the, the genociders mm-hmm. is the right. translation. Fr- um, French, is, French is a remarkably good language for smoothing yes, over such, yes, such terrible terms. Horrific terms, but but one that unfortunately has been necessary to have. Um, these folks, a long story short, they militarize the refugee camps, mm. um, which because of the topography of Eastern Congo, as well as some of the choices made by Mobutu's government, uh, the refugee camps were put too close to the border. Under international law, a refugee camp is supposed to be 50 kilometers away at a minimum. Uh, But 50 kilometers away from those borders is a mountainous region that is much more difficult for humanitarian actors um, and others to access. And so essentially, these guys are able to take control of the camps. Um, and, um, you know, they, they organize the camps in ways that like, for example, if you don't agree to let your son join their militia, uh, you won't get the food distribution, ah, uh, that day. Right. And these camps are already really horrific places. There's a cholera outbreak almost immediately. 
Uh, we don't actually know how many people died in those camps, but it was in the thousands. Um, and they used these these bases essentially as military camps to start launching raids back over the border mm-hmm. into Rwanda with the goal of taking over. So these are Hutu nationalists, uh-huh. uh, people who promoted the Hutu power anti-Tutsi narrative that led to the genocide. I am, I'm curious, how would you, uh, since you say that the, the mountains are back from the border, right. what's the actual border like between Eastern Congo and Rwanda? Is it is it is it rivers? Is it just or is it just a line in the in the forest? So it's important to understand Lake Kivu is mm-hmm. the main part of the border right. between the two countries, and there's these little slivers of land mm-hmm. where you can cross at either end into mm-hmm. the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, on the south end, there is a river there. Mm-hmm. On the north end, it's just a border crossing, and there's kind of a small no man's land. Uh, most people people grow crops in the no man's land because <laughs> land is really valuable, um, and people are hungry yeah. in this area. But um, that you know, I I first visited the region in 2005, so I can comment on what the border's been like since then. Sure. Uh, but it is it is uh, really really different. The Rwandan side is extremely orderly. The roads are paved. Everybody follows you know stands in an orderly queue and follows directions. And then you cross the border, and um, you can see the signs of state um, weakness and mm-hmm. and the breakdown of authority. It's mm-hmm. it's much more chaotic. Potholes in the road, uh, that kind of thing. We talk about how the problem of governing. The Congo governing Zaire, right? This has been a chronic problem, right? This huge territory that, because it was a single Belgian colony, has gained its independence as a single state. And yet, so much of its fighting since 1960 has been built around regional differences and the the difficulties of exercising any kind of central authority. Um, so, is this a matter of that 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 Congo is a kind of magnet for these kinds of troubles because of the lack of central governance? I think I think it's fair to say that that most of Congo's problems come from poor leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, so both during the colonial period and then into the post-colonial period, under the the colonizers, the Belgians um, had a had a system of uh, by the 20th century that they called paternalism. Um, so they didn't allow most a truth people, in advertising. Yeah, right? I mean, they they weren't they didn't weren't hiding what they were doing, um, but they didn't allow most people to get an education beyond mm-hmm. sixth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, when the country became independent in 1960, there were fewer than 20 university graduates. Uh, there were no Congolese doctors. There was something called a medical assistant. Um, oh, so immediately they take all those people and send them to medical school in France. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, you don't have people who are prepared to do the bureaucratic work of governing. Mm -hmm. Um, So accountants and people who know how to write a budget and people who can collect taxes and lawyers, you know, all those, those different things. If you think about what it takes to manage a country of that size, just weren't there because the Belgians didn't allow it to to a class of people to be prepared to do that kind of work. And especially in the in the eastern part of the Congo, right? There was there was rebellions going back in 1964 and 65 with foreign intervention, oh, yeah. right? Right. The, <laughs> well, the even Cubans before that. even before that, right? The Cubans, yeah. the the Americans, the uh, you name it, there were lots of foreign actors in this region. Everybody and their brother was mm-hmm. out there. Um, yeah, I mean, as soon as independence happens, you have the secession movement in Katanga. Mm-hmm. Um, you have different rebellions in the Kivu provinces where a lot of the conflict is now. Um, these are places that are far from the center, right? They are mm-hmm. about 2,000 kilometers, 1,500 kilometers, depending on where you are, from the capital um, and are places where you know discontent mm-hmm. uh, can very easily turn into um, an, an armed movement. Wow. Um, you add in the Cold War dynamics mm-hmm. with um, everyone in the Cold War, the the Soviets, the Chinese, and the Americans looking for people to support, looking for people to say they're on their side. Um, you know, I think I think we have some interesting cases there. So Laurent Kabila actually was a rebel in the '60s as well. Ah. Had an armed group in the Eastern so, Congo. So was he? That I I I noticed that 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 even when he takes over, he's been in the rebel business for thirty years. Yeah, he's a professional did, rebel. Uh, did he start young? Was he in his twenties? Yeah, right? he 
started young. Uh, but he was actually based most of that time in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. So uh. that tells you how effective his rebellion was. Uh, but his re- <laughs> his rebellion was in South Kivu province along the shore of Lake Tanganyika, uh-huh. uh, which, which shares a border with uh, Burundi and Tanzania. And... Um, he actually ends up with with a really interesting ally, which was Che Guevara. Mm-hmm. And Che comes out to the Congo in the 60s um, and has a diary about it. That's It's a really great read. It's his African diaries. But it's him sort of slowly realizing, I don't think these people are really committed to Marxism. Oh. I don't think they're actually looking for a Leninist revolution. I think they might be using us just to get weapons and training and, and all these sorts of things. It's, it's really kind of unintentionally hilarious. And, and am I correct that he has unflattering things to say about Kabila? He has very unflattering <laughs> things to say about Kabila because Kabila never shows up. Ah. Um, it's sort of a waiting for Godot situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they keep saying, you know, he'll be on the next boat. He'll be on the next. He never comes. Um, and when um, they do get into a skirmish um, with the National Army locally, you know, the troops turn and run away. And Che and his guys are like, wait, this is not how you how you fight a rebellion. <laughs> you know, this, this is, is this not, is, not going to succeed. This isn't how we did it in the Sierra exactly. Madre in Cuba. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and um, so related to that uh, is you mentioned minerals and you mentioned cross-border right. trade. So what are we talking about here? What minerals in quest- in particular are valuable in this part of the A Congo? lot of minerals, and it depends on where you are. So okay. Congo historically was known for having diamonds, mm-hmm. um, copper, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, uranium-235. So mm-hmm. the, the uranium that was in the atomic bombs, the first mm-hmm. atomic bombs, actually came from the Congo. Interesting. Um, but um, the, the ones that are probably the most important and the most associated with conflict these days um, are derivatives from something called cassiterite. Um, so m- most popularly, this gets talked about as coltan. Oh. Uh, you also have tin, um, tungsten, and gold. Right. Um, but the coltan, which is a superconductor um, mm-hmm. used in a lot of consumer electronics, medical devices, those kinds of things, um, is the one that's gotten the most attention internationally. Interesting. And it's the sort of thing that if you can dig it up, it's not very heavy and you and you don't need a lot of it to make money, right? Is this the, it, 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 does that help? Depends on the global market price uh-huh. okay. <laughs> and yeah. depends on the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you know, 10 right now, um, the, the prices are not, not great. And mm. so the wartime economy of Congo ebbs and flows um, as with with global market prices, um, as well as with some of the effects of international efforts to stop armed groups from benefiting from this trade, mm-hmm. um, which has actually had an unintended consequence of driving a lot of the trade underground and moving it into smuggling. Well, and so of all of the actors involved, right? If we if we take it for granted that Congo is still struggling with the same problems, um, who is winning? Who is getting the most out of this conflict right now? Not winning in any in any positive, admirable sense, but in the sense yeah. that who's this all working for? So, so yeah, no one is winning in the military sense right. of the word. It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if you'd call it the definition of a stalemate, but it's mm-hmm. one. It's a low intensity conflict mm-hmm. where you know most of the time, most places things are fine mm-hmm. until they're not fine, mm-hmm. and and something happens, and you you have a blow up, and and the people, of course, are the ones who suffer, the right. ordinary folks. Um, but you're not. We're not talking about like territorial gains and losses for the mm-hmm. most part. We're not talking about about uh, counting battle deaths as mm-hmm. a sign of, of victory or loss. Um, you know, and I think the, the question of who benefits from the ongoing chaos um, is a really good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the answer is a whole lot of powerful people are mm-hmm. benefiting from it. So, um, you know, the mineral trade is, is the thing that gets a lot of attention. And certainly there are people who are able to uh, smuggle out uh, minerals, particularly gold. Gold is really mm-hmm. the most challenging because it's, you know, it's small, it's easy to hide right. um, and very valuable yeah, on, sure. on the global market. Um, but you have people involved in the timber trade making money, um, you know, producing charcoal, which is the primary cooking mm. fuel in the region. You have people who, you know, a militia will at times control a border crossing and be able to extract huge 
huge fees from truckers bringing in goods from the east coast of africa um so you know it could be a thousand dollar bribe that you have to pay to Mm -hmm. get a truck through that that checkpoint and a thousand dollars goes a long way yeah at one point we had the um m23 group circa 2012 was making i think about two hundred fifty thousand dollars a month or more three hundred thousand a month just from one border crossing that they wow. controlled. Um, so they never, the M23 never really tried to get involved in the mineral trade because they didn't need to. Um, wow. So this is, this yeah. is like rob, robber barons on the Rhine, it's right? Robber you build, barons build a castle. On the, yes. It's also, you know, people making money in much more subtle and, and uh, less obvious ways. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, owning a house in Goma, the, the capital of the North Kivu province, right there along the border with Rwanda, um, that has a flushing toilet and a high wall, you can make $20,000 a month renting that to the U.S or renting that to an NGO. Um, and so there's a lot of people paying rent that they don't necessarily know where that money is going uh, to and and to what to what ends. Um, so lots of people make money off of this, which which I would argue is an incentive for them not to do anything about right. it or, to, you know, to make sure that the conflict isn't isn't so severe that it interferes with trade right. or makes it unsafe for for NGO workers to be there. But enough chaos that, you know, they can kind of get away with with what they're doing. Well, that which leads to my next question, and that is the role of the U.N. and and other NGOs. So are, if they're if they're there to sort of keep the low intensity conflict low, but not necessarily with any long term plan to end the conflict. Um, what What's going on in this region? Yeah. Okay. So um, the, the peacekeeping mission was originally called Manuk. Um, and that until, uh, I believe, July 1st of 2010 is when it became Manusco, um, which was supposed to be the sign of some reforms. I, I happened to be in Goma that day and witnessed them repainting the fence uh, with the new logo. Um, but, you know, the, the problem that Manuk and Manusco have always faced is that they are underfunded and understaffed. Mm-hmm. So the peacekeeping mission has never been much larger than 20 to 23-ish thousand uh, folks. Um, you know, the Eastern Congo is the size of the United States east of the Mississippi. It right. is an enormous area, or the Congo, I'm sorry, not the east, right. but it, it's an enormous area. And the idea that you can, you know, even do po- basic policing functions mm-hmm. In an area that size with with such a low number of troops was always ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Um, you add to that the fact that the troop contributing countries um, are generally ones that, you know, that I don't want to insult their militaries, but they don't necessarily have the strongest capacity mm-hmm. training levels mm-hmm. um, or commitment to dying in a situation for which the national interest that, that they have is, is questionable, you know? And, and how many, uh, what about the role of, of African union? Um, are there, are these neighboring forces? Cause if, if you're already talking about a war that had nine neighboring countries involved, uh, how far away do you have to go to find somebody who's really neutral? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that's a great question. So the African Union is not involved in this mm-hmm. peacekeeping mission, at least not in a formal way, gotcha. um, for precisely that reason, mm-hmm. because too many of the neighbors had had too many interests in this situation. Um, there are African troops in the peacekeeping mission. There are some Senegalese folks mm-hmm. um, who are in there, some Tunisians, a few Egyptians, but a lot of those troops play kind of special forces type roles or very mm-hmm. specialized like demining activities. Mm-hmm. I've, right. I've met some demise, some Egyptian deminers. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So they're not the bulk of the troops. The bulk of the troops are coming from Asia mm-hmm. uh, and Latin America. So you have a large Indian contingent, large Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Nepalese contingents. Mm-hmm. Um, the Guatemalans are there in force. Really? Yeah, it's really bizarre. You can you can have some nice nice Guatemalan food with them if you're on one of their bases. If you're lucky enough to be there at dinner time. Um, but uh, you know these are places where a lot their governments in many cases are using this as a revenue generating opportunity. Right. So they take the per diem assigned per soldier for the or the, the 
daily rate and only pay the soldier part of that money right. uh, and then take the rest for their, Cause who their sets, budget. Who sets the per diem rates? Is this uh, something that the I UN think the itself? UN Secretary to New York, uh-huh, yeah, the, uh-huh. the DPKO. So, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, these folks are perfectly nice. They're they're perfectly capable. You have a Chinese units running hospitals, things like that. Um, but there are a lot of problems. The language is a mm-hmm. huge one. I can imagine. So historically, the the language barrier. There was a situation back maybe about ten years ago where uh, a massacre was happening. There were there were troops raping um, dozens of women in a village, and a patrol happened to go by the road outside that village. And so people, villagers went out there and waved them down, but they couldn't communicate with one another. The The soldiers, I believe, were, were Indian troops and spoke Hindi. And uh, the, the people were speaking Swahili. Um, and so there was no way they didn't know what had happened. And they didn't do they didn't go into town and stop stop the situation because they thought they were just, you know, waving or oh my goodness. protesting them. Right. Um, so I think the, the ineffectiveness, you know, there's there's a lot of things driving it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would argue that they never had a fair shot That's to begin with. What, uh, what, if any role is the United States playing in this region? Yeah. So, uh, the United States, of course, was a strong ally of the Mobutu regime with mm-hmm. Zaire. We, um, we gave lots of money mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. to, uh, the Zairean state. And of course, uh, we know that, that most of it was embezzled off by Mobutu and his cronies, um, into, into Swiss bank accounts and that sort of thing. Um, the airport at Njili, the, the airport outside the capital Kinshasa, um, actually we constructed the runway there, um, because we needed runways around the world to serve as potential alternative landing sites for the space shuttle. So Njili has one of the shuttle. longest really? air runways in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, that's how close our alliance mm-hmm. was. Wow. Uh, when the war came and the regime changed, uh, this was under the Clinton administration. The Clinton mm-hmm. administration moved very quickly to make friends with Kabila to ensure that the interests, uh, in particular the Arkansas Diamond Company, were protected um, am, and that new contracts were signed with the state to protect shocked. those interests. I am shocked. I am shocked by the use of the word Arkansas. I know. Uh, patronage and clientelism are not just not just an African phenomenon. That's what I'll say about that. But uh, um, since that time, you know, I think one one interesting thing about Africa policy in general, but Congo policy specifically, is it's remarkably consistent from administration mm-hmm. to administration. It doesn't really change a lot, depending on whether there's a Republican or a Democrat. It doesn't really change a lot from, from person to person over time. Um, I would say the top priority for the U.S. in the region is stability. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the United States makes its choices in accordance with with what, will, what they believe will promote stability. Mm-hmm. So a good example of this, at the end of 2018, um, Congo had long overdue elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, the person who was declared the winner, Felix Shishkedi, um, almost certainly did not actually win the vote. Um, it is, it's through a combination of uh, shenanigans enacted by the previous government. So, so Kabila was assassinated mm-hmm. um, in his home in 2001 and his son Joseph took over. Mm-hmm. Um, so Joseph was the leader of the transitional government and then uh, was elected for real in 2006 Maybe, maybe not elected again in 2011, but stayed in office. Uh, but he was term limited out uh, okay. this time around. Supposed to hold elections in 2006, did not do so. A lot of pressure from diplomats, including American diplomats, to hold the election. Uh, but then when the election finally happened, the real results were not honored. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Kabila, the, the, so the Kabila's client became the next president? Or his... uh, had not previously been his client. Uh-huh. Actually, Felix is the son of the major opposition figure, oh. Etienne. Uh, she's kidding. Or sorry. Uh, yeah. Who... Uh, opposed his uh, Mobutu um, quite ferociously and and at great risk to his Mm -hmm. own personal safety um, during the Zaire era. Uh, But Felix was 
probably came in third in the poll oh. and uh, maybe fourth. Uh, but Kabila decided to, I mean, what most observers think is that there was some kind of backroom deal mm-hmm. where Kabila said, we'll make you president if you will protect our interests and the interests of Kabila's allies. So the extent to which Shishkedi is or is not independent is is an open question. Uh, but the United States made the decision to recognize the results of that election formally, um, as we had done in 2011, when there are a lot of reasons to believe that that poll was also not accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is the belief that to acknowledge an election having been um, stolen would be so destabilizing mm-hmm. that it would cause more problems to to mm-hmm. not recognize it or to to make a fierce stand on the on those problems than it would to recognize it. Well, and 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 there's the rub, right? That yeah. we're talking yeah. about a region that has a lot of instability. Yeah. And so if I say I'm in favor of stability, you know, who's going to tell me no? I want less stability. Yeah. But. Uh, is it possible to imagine a policy that would encourage both stability and honest governance? Or democracy. And democracy. I think that it's important to talk about the reaction of the Congolese to mm-hmm. all this. So there is a lot of anger among some sectors of Congolese society, especially the backers of the person they think actually won, um, that, that you know the United States uh, made this decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in other places, people are just glad it's not Kabila. They really mm-hmm. thought he was going to try to make himself president for life. Um, and uh, Which, which there, are, there, is a, there is tradition. There is a, a longstanding region. tradition of that in the region. Um, and so so he, you know, that he, it's not him. So maybe it's his puppet, but at least it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most Congolese have accepted as a positive thing. So maybe we didn't get full democracy, but at least we got a change, okay. right? There was pressure for some kind of change. And maybe this will build over time. Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. How, you know, I don't I don't envy the people who have to make those policy decisions. I'm very <laughs> critical of them, but I don't envy them. Um, I do think that the question of long term sustainability mm-hmm. of this kind of behavior um, of this, these choices is, is a real one. Um, I think, you know, you have a very large country like most countries in Africa, a, a huge and growing youth population that is not able to realize its ambitions. Um, you know, people go to school, they can't find a job, they right. go to university, they still can't find a job. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that is a recipe for um, unrest, for uprisings. And I think Congolese people really want democracy. They they really have this strong idea of what their state should be, mm-hmm. even though the vast majority of people alive today have never experienced anything like good governance at all. Right. right. Uh, or, you know, there's right. people who were still around under Lumumba um, right. who maybe lived in a part of the country that was stable under Lumumba and did, and had some, you know, okay governance. But most people, you know, either born under Mobutu's dictatorship or born since the wars began right. and have no idea, no experience of it, but they have this kind of platonic ideal of what it should be. And, and so to, to, uh, to, as we as we move towards the conclusion of our conversation, but I uh, obviously there's so much to talk about. But I'm looking for moving forward, imagining forward. Right, you you've traveled the region many times. You you study it. You study issues of governance. Um, what programs or or uh, efforts are being made to to provide any kind of hope for better developments towards better governance in the region? Oh, we've tried everything. (laughs) So, I mean, so the big question is, right, is stability and security a prerequisite for Mm -hmm. development? Right. Um, And I think that most people would agree that it is. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, the question of how do you move from a situation that is mostly emergency humanitarian aid Mm -hmm. um, or just kind of helping people in situations of desperate poverty 
under really difficult circumstances that, you know, it's very hard to implement a long-term development project when rebels might overrun and destroy or steal whatever you've, you've implemented. Um, at the same time, the security problem has proved to be, to be really, really challenging to mm-hmm. solve. So I, I think it is fair to say that the DDR efforts there um, have failed. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, security sector reform efforts, you know, the jury's still out. I have a, a team working on some research looking at um, the particular uh, brigades of the Congolese army mm. that were trained by American and European forces oh, um, in an effort of pro- professionalization. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have findings yet, so I don't want to talk too much about that, but there is reason to believe um, that those units may have actually become more effective at oppressing civilians um, through those professionalization efforts. Um, there, there are some things we right? don't necessarily but, yeah. want people to get better at. So, well, but so this is the question, mm-hmm. right? So I, I can tell you, I attended the... Uh, the 50th anniversary of Congolese independence parade in 2010 in Goma. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, lots of pomp and circumstance, a military parade. The, the units that were marching could not march in straight lines and half of them were drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- there's a need for professionalization. There's a need gotcha. for someone to, to take these folks to boot camp essentially and, and get whip them into shape. But um, how do you do that in a context where the rule of law is either not strong or non-existent. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you do that in a context where people know that they will largely have impunity if they commit crimes against civilians? Right. Um, and and how, but how do you get the institution stronger without strengthening the institutions? Right. It's this kind of paradox. Uh, so um, it's very challenging, and the, it, there's really difficult questions like: Do we need to professionalize these armies, recognizing that they will use those skills for for terrible ends? But do we have any other choice hmm. in how we go forward in that area? This is this is tough stuff. And it is tough stuff. And and you have obviously you've you've traveled the region, you've been to the region. You also have colleagues who deal with other regions of the world. Um, to a last big question is you know are the pro- we don't want to catastrophize Africa. Only talk about Africa yeah. as a place where terrible things are going on. Um, are the problems that Africa faces comparable to problems other in other parts of the world? And are there solutions from other parts of the world that could be applied in Africa? I think so. I yeah. think I think there's there's a lot of commonalities. You know, the the legacies of colonialism, mm-hmm. poor leadership, um, neo-colonial activity that kept bad leaders in power mm-hmm. for a really long period of time, and the Cold War context. Um, it, it's it, in one sense is a little bit ludicrous to expect that all that's going to go away in the space of a couple decades, right, or right. three decades now. Um, it, it's it takes time. Political mm-hmm. institutions take a long. You know, one of the things I like to tell my students is that. You know, the tribes of Europe spent a couple centuries killing each other over the question of what kind of Christians they were going to be. Indeed. Um, and so you have to think of these things in, in long term projects. But at the same time, I mean, I think we, you know, we we compare our situations to the in, in the sort of very fragile states like Afghanistan, um, other maybe Iraq these days. But um, I think the, the lessons that we learn are that just governance is really hard and mm-hmm. building social contracts between people and their state is really, really challenging. In Congo, I think we have the advantage. People want to be governed by mm-hmm. a central state, which I'm not sure is true in, in some of the other parts of the of the world where these, so. these situations are similar. But people want that and they have this ideal. And I, I always argue, you know, this is a basis on which to build. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether that means undertaking local justice initiatives initiatives, um, you know, things where people can can deal with problems and begin to build trust in authorities from the very local level or wider scale things. I think I think there's hope. I'm, I'm not I'm not a Congo 
um, pessimist. I'm an optimist. Well, good. Well, uh, I, I guess we that's that's an excellent place to end this conversation, even though I hope that you'll come back sometime. And we can talk about this more and see how these sure. policies have developed. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for taking the time to join us here on A Better Peace. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of A Better Peace. Please check out our website and leave comments and questions about the uh, about this program or suggestions for future programs. But until next time, uh, thank you to Laura C. from, uh, from Colby College. Uh, but from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. See you next time. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.